All right. Well, welcome back to Why Is This Good, a podcast by the Naples Writers Workshop. I'm Christine, and I'm here with Rob and John. Hey there. Hello. And this week, we are going to discuss a story by David Sedaris, who's one of my favorites. And the story is called Now We Are Five. Um, this is in the New Yorker in its entirety for free, so you guys can all read it in advance, which you might want to do for this one, because the section that I'm going to read is the very last section, so I don't want to like ruin anything. Um, but I will read that now. We sketched a plan to return for Thanksgiving, and after saying goodbye to one another, my family splintered into groups and headed off to our respective homes. There had been a breeze at the beach house, but once we left the island, the air grew still. As the heat intensified, so did the general feeling of depression. Throughout the 60s and 70s, the road back to Raleigh took us past Smithfield and a billboard on the outskirts of town that read, Welcome to Clan Country. This time we took a different route, one my brother recommended. Hugh drove and my father sat beside him. I slumped down in the back seat next to Amy, and every time I raised my head, I'd see the same soybean field or low-slung cinder block building we'd seemingly passed 20 minutes earlier. We'd been on the road for a little more than an hour when we stopped at a farmer's market. Inside an open-air pavilion, a woman offered complimentary plates of hummus served with a corn and black bean salad, so we each accepted one and took seats on a bench. Twenty years earlier, the most a place like this might have offered was fried okra. Now there was organic coffee and artisanal goat cheese. Above our heads hung a sign that read, Whispering Dove Ranch, and just as I thought that we might be anywhere, I noticed that the music piped through the speakers and was Christian, the new kind, which says that Jesus is awesome. Hugh brought my father a plastic cup of water. You okay, Lou? Fine, my father answered. Why do you think she did it? I asked as we stepped back into the sunlight for that's all any of us were thinking, had been thinking, since we got the news. Mustn't Tiffany have hoped that whatever pills she'd taken wouldn't be strong enough, and that her failed attempt would lead her back into our fold? How could anyone purposely leave us, us of all people? This is how I thought of it, for though I'd often lost faith in myself, I'd never lost it in my family, in my certainty that we were fundamentally better than everyone else. It's an archaic belief, one that I haven't seriously reconsidered since my late teens, but still I hold it. Ours is the only club I'd ever wanted to be a member of, so I couldn't imagine quitting. Backing off for a year or two was understandable, but to one out so badly that you'd take your own life? I don't know that it had anything to do with us, my father said, but how could it not have? Doesn't the blood of every suicide splash back on our faces? At the far end of the parking lot was a stand selling reptiles. In giant tanks were two pythons, each as big around as a fire hose. The heat seemed to suit them, and I watched as they raised their heads, testing the screen ceilings. Beside the snakes was a low pen corralling an alligator with its mouth banded shut. It wasn't full-grown, but perhaps an adolescent, around three feet long and grumpy-looking. A girl had stuck her arm through the wire and was stroking the thing's back while it glared, seething. I'd like to buy everything here just so I could kill it, I said. My father mopped his forehead with Kleenex. I'm with you, brother. When we were young and set off for the beach, I'd look out the window at all the landmarks we drove by. The Purina silo on the south side of Raleigh, the clan billboard, knowing that when we passed them a week later, I'd be miserable. Our vacation over, now there'd be nothing to live for until Christmas. My life is so much fuller than it was back then, yet this return felt no different. What time is it, I asked Amy. And instead of saying, who cares, she said, you tell me, you're the one with the watch on. At the airport a few hours later, I picked sand from my pockets and thought of our final moments at the beach house I'd bought. I was on the front porch with Phyllis, who had just locked the door, and we turned to see the others in the driveway below us. So is that one of your sisters, she asked, pointing to Gretchen. It is, I said, and so are the two women standing on either side of her. Then you've got your brother, she observed. That makes five. Wow. Now that's a big family. I looked at the sun-baked cars we would soon be climbing into, furnaces, every one of them, and said, yes, it certainly is. I picked this because I was in some random Facebook group for writers and someone was talking about, I think, memoir and pointed this one out. And a woman like kind of chimed in and said that she knew David Sedaris's sister 
um, who died and is written about in this story and thought that it was like a horrible kind of like testament to her character. And so I read it immediately and kind of got to thinking like for stories like this, because we know David Sedaris writes about his life, but he's also kind of been criticized for embellishing things, pretending that he remembers things verbatim when really they're embellished. And I thought it was kind of like an interesting kind of take on memoir, what you're allowed to write about, and whether like a story like this about someone who died, and tragically in this case, has to be the, you know, truth about that person, or can it just be like his truth about his sister? And does it have to be like some kind of testament to her? Or can it just be a piece of fiction that like none of us really remembers? So I got like super into my head about it. And it's not my favorite David Sedaris story. Because I think what he does best at is um, stuff that reads as pure humor from the beginning and then kind of gets you at the end. And this from the outset was kind of sad for what he writes. It was like very nostalgic from the start. So I kind of wonder what you guys thought of it on its face without all those questions first, like what you guys liked about it or if you liked it. I loved it. Um, I've, I haven't read any Sedaris before. Oh. And yeah, I Me was. Me neither. No. What? Yeah. Yeah, it's one of those guys that. You guys should, you guys should check out Dave Barry. He's even more lowbrow. Oh, I read a lot of Dave Barry. <laughs> Same here. I've read enough Barry. Anyway. I'm more familiar with, um, as I was telling John before we started, uh, Amy Sedaris, the, yeah. the actor, and she's an insane person, but she's, <laughs> but she's so funny and, and strange. It, it, what was interesting, what you were saying, Christine, was that the person was criticizing her own brother. I'm assuming this wasn't a relative like David was to Tiffany that said this is what she was like. Right. It was like a friend of Tiffany's who kind of said like, oh, Tiffany was not like that. And kind of like she hated it. She hated this story. She didn't think that was how Tiffany should go out. To, I mean, I don't know the first thing about either of these people. Uh-huh. But if you look at the date of public hit, I mean, he said he wrote it. He said the first line of the story is it happened in late May of in this late year. May, and it was published in October. So presumably it was written even before that. So we're talking within a few months. And it seems like kind of the, the perspective for, I'm not a, don't have any personal experience, but people who survive suicide, suicides, their anger is kind of the chief besides even grief. And this didn't seem like a particularly angry story. I found spikes in it of there, but there, I thought this was pretty, um, it's the word I want. I don't know, diplomatic. And it seemed like it was more about his family. And he was, if, if anything, he seemed like he was taking more pride. I mean, looking beyond the title, of course, he was kind of taking pride in the fact that we're still a big family to kind of harken back to the last line with or without her, which kind of has that tinge of anger to it. But it's, I mean, there's more than a tinge of anger to it now that I mentioned it. I think that sentiment is saying, you know what? It's a family with or without her. And she wasn't really around to begin with. So it's almost, it's kind of, it's almost an F you to a sister, which is, as a reader, that's um, really poignant, obviously. Or even in that line, like you said, um, you know, there's still a family. I think, too, in that context, there's still a family by anyone else's perception, right? This is a stranger who's like, oh, my God, there's five of you. And she doesn't know that there's a missing one. So she's like, that's still, you're still a unit. You're not lacking. I don't know. Did you like it, John? Or- oh, yeah, I, I liked it. Um, hmm. In those terms, I am um, not sure. Well, you don't have to answer my probing questions on what this should be, but like on its face. I did think it was an interesting look at a family dealing with the suicide of a family member who's not really a family member. You know, she'd stopped coming to other things. And uh, so it was an interesting way to reorient the family. I don't know. I, I didn't think too deeply about it in those terms. Though. Sure. 
I meant to circle this earlier, but there's a, there's a part where they're kind of reminiscing about, you know, Tiffany's greatest hits and all these kind of funny anecdotes. Um, I guess from when times were better, you know, when they would have heard about these things. And then there's like the bit where, uh, David is like, Oh, I don't remember her having a scar on her face. And I thought that was one of those details that maybe it's embellished because it is, it's kind of like a good metaphor. But I think for his perspective, like maybe he's angry, but also, He's at least letting the reader know that he's not a reliable narrator in the sense that this is really how it was for Tiffany. Like, he doesn't remember her that way. So he's telling you, like, this is Tiffany through my point of view, through my memories, through my, like, tinged view of all this. And for better or for worse, I don't remember her with a scar on her face. Yeah, and I mean, he even says at the beginning, well, he she left, um, she left a will. And it said, we, her family, could not have her body or attend her memorial service. Mm-hmm. So kind of outlines her feelings about the family pretty starkly at the yes. beginning. Like, no matter what you say in this entire story about her, it's not going to be right. It's not going to be who she is. Right. And she doesn't get to, she doesn't get a say. And I thought that was another interesting kind of take because a lot of times writers will write about their family while everyone's still alive. Or like, um, I, I'm always curious about this and I talk about the modern love column in the New York Times all the time, but the modern love columns are like usually about like terrible relationships and they get published like while the person's alive and well. And then they usually are really good on the podcast about going back and asking the writer, like, did you tell your ex that you were going to write this? Did you tell him when it was published? Like, how did that? go for them and those reactions are like all across the spectrum and then it takes on this whole other quality when the person's dead and they kill themselves (laughs) like they're just like it seems that much more unfair but also to answer my own probing question this is what writing's all about it's about the author's view absolutely I think he should have license to, aside from it's, it's like the empathetic thing to do, let this guy grieve in his own way, whether or not you agree with it. But as you're talking about him being a writer, it's interesting to see that he's using these kind of one line greatest hit stories as a way to build a character. So as writers, that's really effective, particularly when you have, when you don't have a character who's present, um, in, in the present, you have a challenge, but you also have kind of an advantage too, because they instantly have kind of a gravity or a mystery about them. And they're kind of, they're not ready made but they're they're ready for you to push kind of into the reader's sense of reality so when you can kind of have people going back and forth like that you you give yourself so much power and i think it's kind of unfair to criticize someone in this instance for that i don't i again i don't know either of them so that's a different story but i think you i think it comes down to you really do have to give an author leeway like when it comes down to it whether it's a i think memoir memoir dips into fiction probably more often than it doesn't so i think you kind of really have to approach it as this is a piece of writing it's not a document it's not a court transcript it's it is about the whatever you write about it's going to be about the author at least that's that's what I think for most texts. I always, like the journalist in me also always thinks about like the fact that you can't slander someone that's dead. <laughs> I'm like, well, who's going to sue him? You know, it, but it, it's interesting to think about it from that perspective. Like, is she really being hurt by it if she's not here or yeah. And I can't answer that, but yeah, I kind of came away from it thinking like Rob said, this is a guy that's like writing about something that was like really fresh to him. And this was his take on his sister. This was like who his sister was to him. Not very likable and. The feeling was mutual. He did have that one beautiful line, though, where he was 
where she could throw a, a, a plate at you and then make a mosaic of the shards afterward. And that struck me as just like completely metaphorical. I doubt she ever threw a plate at David Sedaris, but just, that's just a beautiful way of putting that. She's going to make a mess of things, but she's going to express her love through that same mess to you in the same instant, which was really powerful. Um, that was really powerful to me. I would zero in on that line if I were this woman who <laughs> criticizing mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. You mentioned before that most like that writing is always about the author or tends to be about the author. Um, and I think what happens, especially in a memoir style or, um, it probably happens in fiction too, but in fiction, I think you can kind of hide behind a character. It's still the character is expression of you in some way, but through point of view, right? Mm-hmm. So everything that he says in the story is from his point of view. Right. So that's why it's about him. Mm-hmm. That's, Absolutely. Um, and this, so in, fi- in fiction, it's true fiction. It's, you're trying to not write about yourself as well as you possibly could and, you know, try to write and say, Oh, I'm writing as a character. You try to write it as that character from that character's point of view. And that's how you accomplish that same thing. It's problematic is how far, how well you can actually write from a non you perspective. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but that's the goal, right? You guys said that you haven't read Sedaris, but like I read him all the time. And um, one of his themes is definitely his family. And he summarizes it like perfectly here. So you guys don't need to have read all of it to get the sense that it's all summed up in that line where he says like, yeah, we're a club and we might not be a good club, but like who would ever want to leave the club? And that's absolutely like the running message from him. So he'll, he'll talk about like how his mother was kind of cold and his dad wasn't very communicative and like how David Sedaris came out when he was older and how, like, you know, this sister splintered over here and, like, blah, blah, blah. But you still get the sense as he's, like, describing all of their faults that he, he really loves his family, however he loves them, you know. It's like when you describe, like, your quirky, your own quirky family. You're like, yeah, they're a bunch of assholes, but, like, they're my assholes. And um, I don't want to, like, spoil what we're going to talk about, but I'm kind of realizing that that seems like a theme for all the stories that we picked tonight, like that kind of tribalism. Like, these are my people and everyone outside of it is different and therefore wrong or bad or threatening somehow. So it's like for David to say, how can my sister want to be with the rest of the world and be happy? It's just an interesting thing to think about. Like, cause she, like, like this critic said, wasn't a bad person, was a good person in other contexts. And her family was maybe like the bad guys. Yeah. And so to, to that person's defense, that maybe the way she's dealing with it is just rushing to her defense. So yeah, someone has to. Yeah, absolutely. No, this seemed like it came from a place of just love and anger and just kind of the mess that those two make when they get together. I mean, mm-hmm. what's, what could be worse than this aside from it being your, a daughter or son, obviously. But mm-hmm. what was also struck me is that when you write about a character that's died, it seems like maybe even invariably that character kind of becomes an avatar, so to speak, for death. Like they, they sort of embody it one way or the other for the author where they seem to hover, they're mythic, and they just take on these deathly qualities. And it, it's interesting to see different authors and how they do how they kind of work with that and what i got from sedaris was kind of that that overriding anger is that as christina mentioned how could you leave our family and it's interesting to see authors confront death particularly so quickly mm-hmm. you just you get the idea that this was written very soon thereafter i'm sure it was therapy for him yeah like um to your point about like the mythic qualities like if you've ever read obits in the newspaper like really read them like or not just like new york times famous people obits but like your local paper obits like those people become alive to you only after death 
Like, you're only finding out about all the great things. And Rob's right. Like, they take on this, like, otherworldly quality where, like, everything's in stone and is viewed through that lens. Genealogy research relies on them so much. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, So, I guess we should talk maybe about, like, the writing itself briefly. <laughs> what? What, what kind um, of podcast are we running here? <laughs> um, That was kind of, to my point, why I, this wasn't my favorite. Because I like David Sedaris for, like, his humor, obviously. But there are definitely some parts there. And um, maybe if you don't know him well, like, they, they're more subtle than in his other works. But... He does this all the time with like the dialect when, when it says like, there's some corn, some coleslaw in there, you know, it's like maybe from another writer that would sound like condescending, you know, but from David Sedaris, I think he's always just kind of like marveling at people, like in the best way. Um, he's always like, he just looks at people and he thinks they're hilarious for whatever reason. He's not uh, laughing at them usually, but they're not also necessarily in on the joke. That is, seems is to be his humor. Like that, um, that critic from the uh, bullet in the brain during yeah. his baseball memory yeah, when he yeah. was like in love with language. Yeah. He, so, and I don't know if you guys would have pointed this scene out, but this was like a scene for me that was like very David Sedaris and not, had nothing to do with anything. But like when his brother's in the grocery store and like does the sneeze trick, like where, where did that come from? And I feel like that's David Sedaris having earned his place in The New Yorker as a humor columnist, reminding people that that's still what he is, even though that has nothing to do with anything. That's like his signature kind of tone. Um, but, I, but I think there is humor in this. Um, even when his dad is like kind of sitting there and they're like, can't believe your life can be reduced to one shoebox. And he's like, actually two. He's like, two shoeboxes. Like the whole family is kind of sarcastic. No, I didn't, this was by no means a downer piece. There's plenty of light moments that that grocery store scene was really funny mm-hmm. where the brother pretends to sneeze and it ends up sneezing on uh, over a woman <laughs> and she's not very pleased <laughs> i found that to be both funny and kind of maybe for comic relief but also there's that kind of family pride again like look we can still have fun months after you know our sisters killed herself and even the father even he kind of he seems like he's playing he seems like obviously he knows his role he's in his 90s at this point and he's i'm what i'm what i'm imagining as a reader is each time the kids the kids are trying to name their beach house and they're coming up with kind of vulgar and funny beach names and he's saying no we can't do that but even his lines are kind of droll and funny in their own way so it seems like everyone knows their place and they just keep continuing playing the role but it's it's done with a lot of love and a lot of humor they obviously like get their humor from their parents it's pretty yeah it's pretty obvious if not the mom then the dad Mm -hmm. seems to he's a he's a great straight man for all these kind of whack jobs (laughs) um i think the other criticism from this woman was kind of talking about like summarizing this column and saying my sister died so i bought a beach house (laughs) that's pretty lazy i mean yeah because i read this and was trying to criticize the metaphor of the beach house but i thought that he if anything that was the best executed here was talking about what it's like to go to this magical place as a child and then what it's like trying to force your family to recreate that magical place as an adult in the wake of the most horrific thing that you can imagine as an adult and how it doesn't really work. And he's talking about like the drive home from the beach house and the downing, how it feels like a downer, you know? The, the, it felt to me like um, buying the beach house wasn't, was a way for him to try to reclaim the family that he, that's now starting to slip away. You know, mm-hmm. mother died, sister just killed herself. It's like, oh my gosh, we're, we're mortal. You know, I gotta cling, I gotta hold on to these people because this is my, like you said before, my tribe. What is like, you know, and then the beach house emerges as a, you know, something from the childhood that was um, something that brought them together that um, made them the family they are. So it makes total sense that he would do that. It's not, uh, yeah, I think that's a lazy summary. 
criticizing that if it were a piece of fiction, sure, I can see that being yeah. an easy metaphor. But people, that's true. But that's people true. do this stuff. Yeah. Right, right. They kind of like force meaning out of their own lives or they make grand gestures and they fall flat. Sure. He he admitted that it was an impulse buy. He admitted that he had buyer's remorse immediately. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm sure it was way worse than, <laughs> than he let on too. Mm-hmm. I like um, this kind of stuff too where like we know David Sedaris at this point in his career, 2013, is like doing pretty well. Um, he's a full-time writer. And for him to make like an impulse speech by is just like, it seems so meta because a lot of his stories that made him who he is are about like apple picking as a college kid and just trying to make ends meet. And now like what's serving as like his daily life for his fiction is something that's completely out of our kind of grasp, right? Like, oh, you bought a house on a whim. Like, yeah, we made you. We, we bought that house, I think. I was happy that he's able to do that, though. Curious if he still has the house. You know, property records are pretty public. (laughs) Is there anything that you guys think, kind of off the top of your head, that we could copy from this or that you think was done well? He does a good uh, way of placing uh, dialogue or just uh, placing the one-liners. And it doesn't get rote or too... You're not expecting it so much. I mean, you can see the pattern develop, but it doesn't feel forced or like, and now the dialogue. He'll give you, he'll kind of a a nice summary paragraph and then he'll bolt on just a really appropriate, but still kind of fun and maybe a little surprising dialogue afterwards. I I appreciate that. Um, when I'm writing my stuff, you're always trying to think of, I I kind of think of like air pressure. It's like, all right, how do I relieve some of the air pressure here? How do I get some dialogue? How do I get some levity? It it feels like it's a fluctuating thing. So that's a really fine balance. And I thought he did a nice job of that. Yeah, I agree. Do you have an example? You can look her on. The one place I kind of wished he had done a little more dialogue was when he's they're they're doing the dirty jokes for the beach house names and it says amy's suggestion had the word seaman in it and gretchen's was even dirtier i, I wanted to know what those were yeah <laughs> it's the new yorker no david, um, david remnick wouldn't let him <laughs> they're too high bro i'm skimming now and i see what you mean rob like it's like a big block of text and then like a little quote. Page, um, well, it's not going to matter to anyone at home, but when this, this, this has already been mentioned with the, about reducing a life to a box yeah. that, yeah, the father whispers it. And f- for instance, for him to whisper it after a, a nice, you know, I don't know, eight long, eight sentence long paragraph and then not to have this big exclamation, but to kind of ease out of that little scene with just this whisper is was really nicely done i wonder too if like going back to the whole idea that this is memoir and like how embellished is it like to rob's point like these are the places where you're gonna let yourself have that leeway as a creative writer right because like i imagine the conversation was fuller than that or didn't land that way necessarily and maybe that's not what he was thinking when his dad said that thing maybe that's what he's thinking now as he's writing it but yeah, if we're going to write memoir, we're going to write about like things that have actually happened to us. Like that's what makes it a story is like arranging those things so like you said, things pop where they should and, and land where they should. Well, you mentioned this a lot about how, you know, if you're talking on the phone, we don't have to see him answer the phone or open the door, you just go in the room and then we're the characters are sitting there and they're doing the thing that's important. Um and you know, I the comment I the thing I wanted to talk about for this one um that i noted was um just the arrangement of uh of the little vignettes that build up the narrative right actually when we talk about the next story i have more to say about this but uh the idea of each detail that builds the overall story being itself a small story almost like a, a fractal or something is an interesting idea so each of those vignettes is its own little story like the, the father whispering um, about the box and he comes in and says something and it's a little exchange that tells a, a micro story that adds to the larger story but the the thing you know he tells it mostly linearly except with flashbacks and all that to kind of bring in 
his sister's life. But then when they're leaving town, he's at the airport and he, he has a memory of the, of the vacation, the, um, their little trip to the beach. And I thought of our final moments at the beach house I'd bought. This is how it ends. It ends with that, um, where, where the, uh, the realtor, I think it is meant saying, Oh, wow, that five, uh, that makes five. Wow. Now that's a big family. Um, which reflects back on the beginning when he talks about how people point out that six is a big family. And so that gives us a frame. If he had presented that linearly, that would have happened in the middle somewhere. It would have been in the totally wrong place. Yeah. And I think, so that's what, like, exactly what you guys are saying is how everything is arranged is so important for creating the, um, the emotional impacts that you want to create. Is that your takeaway then? Like the idea of these vignettes and yeah, the vignettes? way, the way the vignettes are chosen. The way that they are individual stories and the way that they're arranged. They're mostly linear. Like I said, the, the way flashbacks, we could, we could probably talk about how the way the flashbacks are handled, but I think it's mostly evident in the way that, that it ends on something that is out of order and that's pulled out to make that emotional impact. Because if this were some, if the, I mean, presumably he could have, um, embellished some of these scenes and he, Probably has embellished most of them because nobody has that good of a memory. I mean, maybe, but uh, you know, word for word, what people say. But um, maybe this really happened, or that kind of struck him in retrospect as like, "Wow, that was a moment," and that's what my story is about: is that moment. Right, and I think too, as a writer who's used to writing about his life, he's thinking in these terms probably all the time, and whether or not he can help it. Yeah, that's true. Well, I guess my takeaway from this is, as someone that reads him all the time, like, I used to only write about, like, things that had actually happened to me before I, like, understood that I was, like, allowed to invent things, you know? So, like, in college, I, like, just wrote about myself all the time, which is, like, so boring because you run out of your own greatest hits and then you're, like, I'm only 20-something. and Like, I- I'm not worthy of a memoir. I guess I got to start inventing shit now. And um this reminds me that you can write about yourself and you can write about your family and it doesn't have to be flattering. <laughs> And it can be like, um, actually pretty poignant and like well done. And if, if you write it a certain way, I think it's of interest to other people. You don't have to be like memoir worthy to take a stab at stuff like this. If, you know, the underlying message here is about like a sister that killed herself, like that's universal enough for me to sit down and read your 10 page story. You know, I really like have gotten away from that and I'm like, I should like revisit stuff that's going on sometimes and, and write it kind of funny and not worry about like what people are going to think. Cause. For being honest, it's not going to get published anyway. Oh, I don't say that. Uh, I, I've been uh, minding my life. I never wrote about myself um, for fiction at all for the longest time. It wasn't until the last two or three years that mm-hmm. I was like, I need to come up with stories for the workshop. I'm going to mind my life and start doing that. I didn't do. I haven't written a lot, but I have ideas um, and stuff. I We talked about this in um, our last meeting for the workshop. Um, we read a piece of nonfiction written this way creatively. Oh yeah, that's right. And then it was also written out of order with vignettes. And I told the group, like, if you wanted to, cause people like prompts to write about something that actually happened, but write about it out of order and like watch how the confines of truth, you know, as relative as that is kind of forces you to tell a certain story. Like if you can't invent scenes, but you can just like we talked about engineer them in a way that arrange them in a way that makes it land this way. Then I think you really learn what makes a story, right? Cause everyone's life is a story, but memoir is not easy to do. 
right? There's a lot of work that makes it interesting. I think that's why um, there's so much bad memoir. People think by virtue of having lived that their story is interesting, A to Z, but it's, it's not. It has to be told creatively. I was going to find the passage in Aristotle, but it's something like he's talking, he talks about plot as being the main motivator of story or drama. And he says a life, something like life is not a story. Life is not a plot. A plot is something that a, an author imposes on life to make yeah. it a story, to make it a drama. Oh, I love that. So, and that's 2,500 years ago, so. We should put that on our website for people that, <laughs> that, that want to join or uh, pay us to First edit. rule of Fight Club. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, this was a good episode, and um, that's it.